Hey everybody, this is Max. Welcome back to the pod. We're going to be looking at another one of our little slogans here, things that we need to stop saying in church. But before we do, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the first few episodes. This has been so much fun uh, to get off the ground. And uh, man, I would just really appreciate it if you've enjoyed the first few episodes and you haven't left a rating yet on iTunes or on whatever platform that you use. Uh, I would so appreciate that. Uh, and uh, share it with friends if you've uh, found it helpful or enlightening. That would just mean a ton to me. But honestly, this has been just so much fun to begin to do. I hope you've enjoyed the first few episodes. Uh, I have a bunch more planned already uh, that I'm really, really excited about. And uh, we're, we'll be kind of starting to wind down this series here with this one and I think one other episode, and then we'll move on uh, to something uh, that everybody loves talking about, and that is politics. So you can look for that here in the next a uh, week or so, and uh, our first episode of the the politics series, I think you're going to especially like. But today I want to look at another thing that I think we need to stop saying in church. And this one's a little bit different um, because this one you don't hear from the pulpit as much. This is more something um, that me as a pastor and uh, as a, a Bible teacher at a, uh, on a missions base that I heard more individually from people, but I heard it actually quite a bit. Now, sometimes you do hear a version of this from the pulpit, and um, and, and we'll get to that in a second, but the, the phrase, so you hear slightly different versions of it, but the phrase that I think we need to stop saying in church, then we'll look at this week, is this phrase, I'm not a theologian. And I've heard this from, like, like I said, mainly from the pew, mainly from the people, but there are versions that I've heard from the stage as well, uh, in some of the circles that I have run in in different places and, and churches and conferences and, and all the like that I've been around. And when individuals use it, they usually use it as kind of like a, a hall pass in order to get through or avoid having to really think about something or deal with some kind of complicated issue. And it's kind of this get-out-of-jail-free card that I've found people will use in order to, to not have to try and work things through. Or sometimes it's it's used uh, after something is said as a way to kind of hedge their bets when they say something they're not quite sure about, something that maybe they have just always grown up believing, but they have no real way of defending because they just have never had to really think through it. And so they'll say something that they believe and then say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a theologian, but... and and as a way of kind of hedging them themselves in. But I think this phrase, I'm not a theologian, or the versions that we'll look at here in a moment, I think it's troubling for a few reasons. At its core, I think the problem of it is it's a kind of escapism employed by Christians from having to think through or wrestle with the question of God and the question of life and all of the complexities that come with that. And in many circles, this theological escapism is actually rooted in the idea, and this is why I actually wanted to do this episode, and this is really one of my passions, is this idea, that I'm not a theologian, this escapism from having to mentally wrestle through certain things, in some of the circles that I run in is rooted in this deeper idea that somehow the spirit and the mind are contrary to one another. And there's a, a, a kind of this undercurrent culture of degrading the mind and devaluing 
learning or devaluing logic or reason. Uh, and it's often set up against the work or the life of the Spirit. So easy example. This is one, a, a version of this same thing that I have heard from pulpits all, all over the place, uh, where seminaries are often called cemeteries. So preachers will like to use that joke, and I've heard tons of preachers use that joke. And they're viewed as dangerous places where professors just stuff your head with ideas but are void of the Spirit. And I've been told this by numerous people over the years, both in and out of people that are themselves in and out of ministry. And you'll also hear this idea sometimes from the pulpit of head knowledge pitted against heart knowledge. And head knowledge is something that comes by human effort. And the second, you know, heart knowledge is something that comes by the Spirit. And what we need, it's often touted, is that we need more heart knowledge or what other people have I've heard called experiential knowledge. And while I don't disagree with the validity and the need for experiential knowledge, knowledge that touches our heart and our emotion, I think it's a grave mistake to, mistake to set that up against intellectual learning because it reinforces the idea that the spirit is somehow not at work or at least less at work in learning as he is in our experiences. And that's the fundamental issue that I want to highlight and, and point to today. But that distinction, that ranking where the Spirit is somehow more at work in our experiences, in our heart knowledge or experiential knowledge, more than he is in, in quote-unquote learning or, or head knowledge, that assumes a whole bunch of things that are problematic. One, we all know that our own experiences can lie to us, that they can appear in the moment to be one thing, and then we look back later and it actually turns out that they were something quite different. And so the idea that experiences are somehow more true or God is somehow more present or more at work or we can more see what he is doing in our experiences or in quote-unquote heart knowledge is just tricky because our own emotions lie to us. Our own experiences lie to us. Additionally, it ignores the fact that our experiences and our heart knowledge and all these kinds of things, they raise all kinds of new issues and questions that we then have to actually think through. So if someone goes through something, has some encounter with God where the, the Spirit touches them, that may teach them one thing to be true that maybe they couldn't get at that, in that same way through learning or reason. But that experience then will open up a whole other host of questions that then they have to wrestle through. And my proposition here in this episode is that I don't think we can separate the two. Actually, I know we can't separate the two. And the framework in which we use this kind of language to get out of specifically the the mental side of it, the thinking side, the studying side, the, the learning side, I think setting that up against the spirit or our experiences or our heart or our emotions, I think is just deeply problematic. So take, for example, the lame man who got healed at the pool of Bethesda. So Jesus walks into this crowd of sick people and heals one guy, seemingly at random, and then walks away, leaving everyone and him to figure out what in the world just happened. 
And this one person's healing, this experience that he had, this thing that he could not have learned, it just happened to him. God happened to him. It actually raises all kinds of questions, both for him and for us, such as why did Jesus only heal this one person? Why didn't he heal anyone else? Why did he wait so long and to come and heal the guy? We're told he was there for, I think, 38 years. Consider all the other people in the crowd who experienced and witnessed that miracle that day. And did they believe? We're not, we're not told. But we, we know from everywhere else in the gospel, people experienced Jesus all of the time. They had, quote-unquote, heart knowledge, experiential knowledge. They experienced the, the real tangible move of the Spirit. And it didn't actually lead them into truth. It didn't actually lead them into following Jesus. So my point here is to just somehow say that our experiences, which are true and necessary and good, and God gives them, but that somehow those are better than, and we should there we should seek them more than something like learning and study and thinking and reason and theological discipline that somehow the former is 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 better than the latter i think is is a mistake so a- another example of how this works from a little bit different angle we have the story in matthew 16 and matthew 17 two of the most important stories i think in probably for sure all of the gospels at, at least i think so i think honestly in all of the new testament but matthew 16 Peter makes the great confession. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus completely affirms Peter's confession. And he says that this was revelation given to him by the Father. So note, he didn't learn this. This wasn't study. This was supernatural, supernatural revelation that the Father gave to Peter. That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But that revelation, which Jesus tells us was truly from God, is immediately misinterpreted by Peter so that he actually ends up resisting Jesus in his very next statement, which Jesus said he must go to Jerusalem to be crucified and to die. And Peter opposes Jesus in that statement precisely because he believes that Jesus is the Christ. So Peter realized what just happened. God gives Peter a real revelation, supernatural revelation of who Jesus is. That supernatural revelation, that experience, that encounter, that word from God doesn't actually let Peter off the hook from doing the work of interpreting it with his mind and interpreting it in the correct way. And Peter actually ends up opposing Jesus, actually ends up resisting Jesus Five seconds later, because he misinterprets a true word from God to the point that Jesus looks at Peter, who had just gotten this revelation, which he said is from God, and says, get behind me, Satan. And again, we have to realize that Jesus is, or that Peter is resisting Jesus precisely because he believes the word that the Father had just given him. He just is misinterpreting it. And so here's the difference. For Jesus, being the Christ meant crucifixion. 
It meant sacrifice. It meant love. It meant forgiveness. It meant death and resurrection. But for Peter, Jesus being the Christ meant exactly the opposite. It could not mean any of those things, but it had to mean something else. It meant rulership and power and most likely the death of others, but certainly not the death of Jesus, which is why he resists Jesus. And so my point here is is that even when the Spirit is deeply at work in the life of Peter and giving him one of the greatest revelations in the New Testament, it doesn't let Peter off the hook from actually having to interpret it rightly and do the theological work of saying, well, what then does that mean? The very next chapter, we get a similar thing where Peter then, and this is the kindness of, of Jesus, that that moment doesn't disqualify Peter from the Mount of Transfiguration, which happens just in the very next chapter in Matthew 17. And Peter gets taken up onto the mountain and he sees Jesus transfigured, shining brightly like the sun. Moses and Elijah start talking to him. And again, the Father speaks, this time audibly, so the others can hear it as well. And they misinterpret that moment as well. They say, let's stay here and build tabernacles for everybody. And Jesus says, no, 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 we have to go down. Because the world needs us, because there are things to do. I'm not here just to stay up on the mountain. And so what I'm trying to point to here is I think we need to resist this this temptation that we have, resist this idea that we have, that somehow the experiencing work of the Spirit that we that we have, that when we experience the, the work of the Spirit, that that somehow lets our brains off the hook because somehow those two things are opposed to each other. And what I want to say is that they're not opposed to each other at all. One more example, and this is one is, to me, even maybe even more striking. When Jesus is going down to Jerusalem, In order to be crucified, he sends two of his disciples ahead into Samaria to find lodging. And they come back and they report that the Samaritans have rejected them and they don't want them to stay. And what what are the, the disciples' response? They actually pull on the authority and the story of Elijah from the Old Testament in 1 Kings 18. And they ask to call down fire from heaven and consume those villages. So they make an actual appeal to Scripture. They basically are saying, listen, Elijah did this to the people who resisted God in their day. We believe that you are the Christ, and these people are resisting you. Can we do to them what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal? And Jesus rebukes them and says that you don't know what spirit you have, basically saying you're of a satanic spirit. He's telling them the same thing that he told Peter. But the striking thing is they're actually using a Bible verse to try and back up that claim. They're appealing to the authority of the Bible. And all of us to say is that we must not, cannot frame our Christian faith in a way that pits the life of the Spirit against learning or the life of the mind. I mean, isn't it the Spirit who promised to lead us into truth? Isn't it the Spirit who will declare the things of God to us? Didn't Jesus tell us to love God with our mind? And when Paul set out to give the Church of Rome or Galatia a scriptural argument for justification by faith, wasn't it the Spirit working through his mind and intellect as he reasoned through the scriptures to show that Abraham was justified by faith? And yet, 
I, I've heard preachers, and you maybe have too, warn, actually legitimately, just straight out warn congregants from using reason or thinking about something too much and exhort them instead to simply just, quote-unquote, follow the Spirit or, quote-unquote, listen to the Spirit. And the implication is clear that to use your brain is somehow anti-spiritual. And in order to follow the Spirit, one must check their brain at the door or at least be ready to ditch it when the real work needs to be done. And when we really get down to spiritual business, then we, we don't have much need for the mind. Now, at times, does the Spirit confound our mind? Absolutely, all the time. And actually recognizing that helps us remain open to the ways that the Spirit may want to move. It postures us to lean into the God who is and the God who blows like the wind. It forces us to live with open hearts and open minds and open hands. And, and, but that openness can't be set against the mind. It can't be set against thinking. It can't be set against learning. It can't be set against reading. It can't be set against meditating, any of these things. So the first reason is I think we need to stop saying I'm not a theologian is I think it frames, it's rooted in, basically any time that I've encountered it, it's rooted in this idea that the spirit and learning, the spirit and the mind are against each other. And I want to just, I, I think we just need to get rid of that altogether. But secondly, I think we need to stop saying I'm a theologian or any of the versions that we've talked about here so far, because it fails to realize that every time you read your Bible, that you talk about God, that you are engaging in an act of theology, and therefore you're functioning as a theologian. Philosophers have long pointed out that reading is an act of interpreting, that you cannot read anything, including your Bible, without simultaneously interpreting what you are reading. And that act of interpreting is fundamentally an act of theology. And likewise, anytime you talk about God, because he is transcendent above all of our speech capabilities, we're only ever able to actually speak about him in shadows and metaphors and approximations. For example, when we say that God is love or that God loves you, which is a, a theological assertion, it begs the question, which God are you talking about? What kind of love? How do you know? And so every time we speak about him, we have to fill in those blanks of what do we mean? How do we know? How can we be sure? Which one? Which way? And as, as Christians, those are all questions that we need to wrestle through and that we have to take seriously. However we answer those questions, we have to recognize that those answers fall woefully short for what God is actually like. So that when we say God is love, however we go on to describe that love falls dreadfully short of the love that God actually is. That we're just speaking of shadows and approximations. That when we call him father, he isn't just the best version of an earthly father. He is a different kind of father than any of us have ever known. And our fathers, however great they might be, are merely shadows, shadowy figures of what the true father actually is. And that means that all of us are theologians in the proper sense of the term. Now, we're not all career theologians. Very, very few of us will actually ever, would ever even want to be that, let alone actually turn out to be one. 
but we are all proper theologians because we all read and speak about God, which are, as I was just saying, theological acts. Therefore, to say that I'm not a theologian is, is in a sense, to deny your own faith. It's to deny your own relationship with God because every way in which you engage with God is one that must be interpreted. Again, whether that's an experience like the Mount of Transfiguration, whether that's a miracle like the Pool of Bethesda, whether that's a divine revelation like Matthew 16, none of those let us off the hook of actually having to interpret them. And this kind of denial of ourselves, of what it actually means to be humans in relationship with, with God, begins to, it's, it's like cutting out your own legs from underneath you. It's like trying to rid your body of all of its senses and then attempting to live in the world and make sense of it and direct others to follow you. And so the question is not whether you are or are not a theologian. It's whether you're a good one or not. Are you speaking in a way that's faithful to God? Are you reading in a way that is true of God? Are you living in a way that's in right standing with the God who actually is? And admitting this is is an important step, that we're all theologians, because it forces us to take responsibility for the ways we think and speak about God. If my very life as a Christian is a theological act of interpretation, that at every turn I'm having to act as a theologian and try and think and describe and hear and pray to the God who is, and I'm trying to understand him, then I have to take responsibility for it. And here's the crux of the matter. And if you hear anything, hear this. I think it's exactly this responsibility that most people are scared of and want to run from. And I think this is the other fundamental reason why people say the say this phrase or some version of it. The first is I think we have a wrong view of the Spirit and the, the work of the Spirit. And the second one, and actually maybe deeper one, is I think a lot of people feel ashamed or underqualified or unable to meet the task in all kinds of ways. And therefore, they want to escape from under that burden of responsibility. So many young people, especially that I meet, they say, well, listen, I'm not a theologian as a way to, to sidestep the responsibility of having to do the work simply because they feel bad. They feel ashamed. They feel scared to do it. They feel like they're going to fail. But friends, this is actually where the good news of the gospel meets us. Precisely because God is more than our thoughts. That he's better than any way we could ever speak about him. That he's more gracious than we ever dare dream. That if every thought that we have and every word that we utter about him inherently falls short of his actuality, then the shame of that burden is lifted because it means that everything he does in me and in the world, in every interaction, every experience, whether it be big, little, or small, whether it be in my heart or in my mind, that all of them are acts of grace. Let me try and put it another way. That even when I speak about him in a way that is true, such as God is love, Those words still fall short of the God who actually is because the meanings that we subscribe to those words don't actually describe who God is. 
He is love in a way that we could not begin to comprehend. He's merciful in a way that is beyond our vocabulary and experience. He's good in a way that we cannot even begin to fathom goodness. And thus, every word we say about him, every experience we have of him, every attempt we make to comprehend him are all themselves acts of his grace in our life. And all of this means that the burden of responsibility that I'm, I'm talking about, that so many of us want to flee from, that it's not a crushing one, but a gospel one. This is part of what I think he means when he says, is not my burden easy and my yoke light? That in a real way, coming under the responsibility of, of loving God with our mind and trying to speak and think about him faithfully and by giving ourselves to things like reading and study and thinking and contemplation and meditation, that it actually ushers us into the grace of God, that these are not tasks for the elite or for the intellectuals or for the gifted, but for all of us. And so whether you're able to properly explain all the nuanced theological positions related to justification or eschatology or sanctification is ultimately besides the point. Now, we should try and do our best and give ourselves to those ideas and to studying and to thinking and questioning and talking and interpreting and reading and all of the other ways that we can love God with our mind and speak about him faithfully. But we must do so knowing that whether it's the simplest words of an infant or the wisest words of a PhD student, they are all equally acts of God's grace flowing through our lives. All of them. And so we, whether we speak in simple words or whether we can riff on theological nuanced history for 20 minutes is kind of beside the point. As long as we're giving ourselves in the best way we know how and the best way that we can with what we've been given, we're all actually standing on level ground because all of us are actually just in those moments that we're doing the work. Those moments of doing the work are themselves acts of God's gracious spirit at work in our lives. I mean, what, what does Paul say? We can't even call him Abba Father, but by his spirit. The, the ability to make the claim he is a father is itself an act of the Spirit first at work in us. And so lastly, and this one's quick, I believe that if we want our children to inherit our faith and to hold it for themselves, we need to give them more than bedtime stories and table prayers. That we need to give them real theological grounding. And this task was central to the life of Israel and was encoded in the, the Shema, which is, kind of stands at the heart of the Old Testament in many ways. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 6 when Moses instructs parents to teach God's commandments to their children by speaking to them as they sit in their house and walk by the way and lie down and when they rise up. And parents were told to bind the teachings of Yahweh as a sign on their hand and to place them on the frontlets of their eyes. They were supposed to write them on the doorposts of their home and on their gates. And in total, what Moses is commanding Israel to do is to set the commandments of God at the very heart of their life and to be the plumb line of how they raise their kids and how they just do life as a family. That Israel was to raise 
theological children, if I can put it that way, so that they would be able to remain faithful to Yahweh. And so I think we need to stop saying, I'm not a theologian, as a way of escaping our own responsibility and calling to live faithfully in this world to the God who is. And we must refuse to see the spirit and the mind as contrary to one another. Will we all be professional theologians? No. Will we all read volumes of theology and philosophy? No. But, but we cannot neglect our responsibility as individuals or as churches to love God with our mind by seeking to escape the work that entails in the name of some ethereal spirituality or flimsy Christianity. We can't do it. We can't try and claim the life of the Spirit and turn off our mind. And likewise, we can't flip on our mind and, and reject an, a life of openness to the way that the Spirit might move. We need to hold both of those things together in tension because they're actually one in the same thing. And we need to do that because the world needs it. And our children and our future grandchildren, they depend on it too. So thanks for checking out the episode. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button. If you haven't left a review or a rating, I would sincerely appreciate it. We're going to do, I think, one more episode in this series that'll be, a little, that'll be fun. And then we're going to talk about politics, and I can't wait for that episode as well. So 